Let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 9. A couple of weeks ago, we began to study here in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And I told you that in this rather lengthy passage that we would see three must to becoming a Christian. Three requirements or necessities to becoming a Christian. Three must to becoming a Christian. In verses 1 through 8, we saw the first must. You must be born again. That is, in order to become a Christian, enter the kingdom of God, become a part of God's family, one must be born from above. One must experience a second spiritual birth, a miraculous rebirth of heart, nature, and spirit that only the Holy Spirit of God can do. Beginning last Sunday morning in verse 9, we saw the second must. You must believe in Jesus. And as we're making our way through this portion of the passage that deals with that must, you must believe in Jesus, we are going to see Five things that are included in believing in Jesus. It's one thing to say you must believe in Jesus, but belief being so important and so misunderstood has to be clarified. And that's what we're seeking to do in verses 9 through 18. See exactly what it means to believe in Jesus. Through looking at these five things that are included in believing in Jesus. We covered a couple of them last week. And I'll point those out to you for the sake of review. Uh, as we begin again where we started last week in verse 9. Uh, before we actually get to our starting point for today. Verse 9, Nicodemus asked Jesus in regards to being born again. How can these things be? And Jesus replied to Nicodemus, Are you a teacher of Israel or are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. There in verse 11, we saw the first thing that's included in believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus includes belief in what He says. And because Jesus is the Word of God, we could also say that believing in Jesus includes belief in what the Word says. Belief in what the Bible says. Verse 12. If I have told you about these things that happen on earth, like birth and wind, and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about 
things of heaven. From verse 12, we saw that if believing in Jesus includes belief in what he says, then belief in what he says begins with believing him on the little things. The small things, the simple things, the earthly things that will never have any ability to understand the bigger, deeper, heavenly things of God if we don't take Him at His Word and take the Bible at its Word on these comparatively smaller things. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And from verse 13, we saw the second thing that's included in believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus includes belief in who Jesus is. When he refers to himself here as the Son of Man... He's answering the question that brought Nicodemus to him in the first place. And I would suggest the real question was, are you the Messiah? By saying he's the Son of Man, he's answering yes. Belief in Jesus includes believing in who Jesus is, that he is the Son of Man. The Messiah, the Savior, the promised Christ, that he's the Deliverer. The hope that was promised throughout the Old Testament, the Redeemer. That He is the Son of Man is pictured in Daniel 7. Divine Lord God. That brings us to where we pick up today in verse 14. And from these verses that follow, we're going to see the next three things that are included in believing in Jesus. Verse 14 says... Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What Jesus is doing here in verse 14 is getting to the point of His coming. He is explaining His reason for coming down. To borrow from His language in in verse 13, where he talks about being the one who has descended from heaven. And therefore, he's the only source of authority to believe when it comes to things of heaven. Heaven itself. Heavenly things. In verse 14, Jesus is saying that his point in coming down wasn't to become an earthly king. It wasn't to set up an earthly kingdom. At least his first coming did not find its reason in this. Instead, his first coming's point was to set up a spiritual kingdom in which he would rule in a kingdom, over a kingdom of people who belonged to him by faith. People who believed in him. He would rule over their hearts. The point of Jesus' coming wasn't to deliver His people from Rome. But that's why many didn't believe, right? That's why most didn't believe. 
because that's what they wanted. They thought that was their biggest need. And oh, how often we are mistaken when it comes to what we need the most. Today, there are people who want Jesus, but they want Him for reasons like this, to deliver us too from a bad government. To deliver us from physical sickness, to deliver us from poverty, to deliver us from our problems. But we could learn from this that the point of the first coming of Jesus wasn't to deliver us from a bad government. It wasn't to deliver us from physical sickness. It wasn't to deliver us from poverty. It wasn't to deliver us from our personal problems. At least primarily, it wasn't to do those things. The point of the coming of Jesus was to deliver us from our greatest problem. Do you know what it is? Sin. The point of Jesus' coming wasn't to lift Himself up as is characteristic of most earthly leaders. But the point of His coming was to lay His life down and be lifted up. The point of His coming wasn't to receive a crown, at least the kind of crown that the world recognized, but instead a cross and a crown of thorns to go along with it. The point of Jesus' coming wasn't merely even to live or to be born, but to die. The Son of Man had come to be lifted up. And lifted up there is a reference to His crucifixion, is it not? He's saying that the point of my coming was to be crucified. And if you're even in the least familiar with the sayings of Jesus and the Gospels of the New Testament, you know that over and over again, in one way or another, Jesus said this, the whole reason that I've come is to go to the cross. It's the reason. That's why the phrase that he uses here is must be. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Must speaks of a necessity. We all understand that, don't we? That it was an absolute must for the Son of Man, Jesus, to be lifted up on a cross. It had to be. Don't we all realize and recognize that this wasn't a plan, this wasn't plan B, this wasn't a secondary plan, this was the plan. There was no other way. There was no other plan. This had always been the plan from before the very foundations of the world, from before the beginning of time, from eternity past, it had always been the plan for the Son of God to come and be lifted up on a cross to gather into Himself and His Father their very own people. Now this is pictured throughout the New Testament in many ways and in many places. 
the coming of Jesus, the point of His coming, His crucifixion. And I've told you too many times to count over these past few years that it's all about the gospel, right? The Bible isn't a bunch of stories merely. It's one story. And there are a bunch of stories that point us to this one story. And that one story is Jesus and who He was and what He came to do. So the Old Testament pictures this in a lot of ways, a lot of places. Well, there's one that's referenced for us here in verse 14. And it is the bronze snake that was lifted up by Moses in Numbers chapter 21. Now be honest, how many of you would name as your favorite book of the Bible the book of Numbers? While we're in a confessing mood, who could confess as we read through the Bible that we hurriedly read through the censuses of Numbers? It's not like we're consulting the study notes down at the bottom of the page about begatting this and begatting this and the tribe of Simeon having this many people and this many and this many and so on and so forth. But there are in the book of Numbers some wonderful stories if you make your way through it. And one of those wonderful and remarkable and even foreshadowing stories is this story that I've just alluded to that's mentioned here in John 3.14. Are you familiar with that story at all? Moses lifting up a bronze serpent in Numbers 21? Well, if you're not, and if you, even if you are and uh, want to hear about it again, let me, let me tell you about it. Israel had been delivered from their slavery in Egypt, and it was between their being delivered from there and getting to the promised land. So this was called the wilderness experience. And it lasted a whole lot longer than it should have because of their sinfulness. For 40 years, they wandered around in the wilderness. A big part of their sinfulness was that they were complainers. Always griping. Always criticizing. Always complaining. On this occasion... They were, as they often were, griping about God, complaining about God, complaining about Moses, the leader that God had given them. And God finally, at least for a time, had enough. And to punish them, to discipline them, He sent among the camp of Israel snakes that were extremely venomous. So venomous that when they bit the people, and they did bite many, many of them, and were continuing to do so, that those who were bitten died quickly. And so as this was going on, Israel all of a sudden gets the point of the snakes. We've been bad. God's punishing us. We want the bad to go away. So they go to Moses and they say, would you intercede to God on our behalf? And Moses did. And God told Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a bronze snake. And I want you to raise that snake up on a pole or on a standard like they would their flag. 
And I want you to instruct the people that if they are bitten or they have been bitten, if they will look up to that snake, they don't have to do anything else, but if they'll look up to that snake, that bronze snake on the pole in faith, that they will be healed by merely looking to it. Then they'll be healed. And I'll give them life. Where now, because of the snake bite, all they have is death. Well, that reference in verse 14 of John 3 brings us to the third thing that believing in Jesus includes. If you're writing, this would be one to write down. Believing in Jesus includes belief in what he came to do. Believing in Jesus includes belief in what he came to do. So according to verse 14, what did he come to do? Be lifted up on a cross. Believing in Jesus then includes believing that Jesus came. The whole point of his coming was to be lifted up, crucified on a cross in the place of others who had sinned against God and were under the judgment of God. Belief then is looking up to him on the cross like those in Numbers 21 looked up to the bronze serpent on the pole. Belief in Jesus is counting on the death of Jesus to be acceptable to God as a punishment in our place. It's counting on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's counting on the substitution of Jesus on the cross in our place. He is taking the judgment of God in our place. Believing in Jesus is counting on God's provision with pure faith. That's what the folks in Numbers 21, who did it? Now, all of them didn't do it. Isn't that strange? They're snake bitten, but they still won't look up to the bronze serpent. A lot of them just die in their hard-headedness. But that's what believing in Jesus is. It's believing, it's counting on God's provision. God's provision being Jesus on the cross. Counting on it and nothing else. My hope is built on Jesus' blood and righteousness. Faith alone in Jesus. Look at verse 15. Well, actually, before I read verse 15, let's read verse 14 leading up to it because it goes together. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. This is why we look to God's provision. This is why we look to Jesus lifted up on the cross. This is what we're counting on him for, that being eternal life. We're in our sin, what do we have? Death. A death sentence. We're dead men and dead women walking. We just don't know it most of the time. We look to Jesus for eternal life. That brings us to the fourth thing. Believing in Jesus includes. 
Believing in Jesus includes belief in what he will do for you. This is part of what it means to believe in Jesus. Believing that Jesus will do something for us and knowing what he is, what it is that he'll do for us. Believing in Jesus includes belief in what he will do for you. So according to this verse, what will he do for you? He'll give you eternal life. He'll give you life. Just like God gave life to the people in Numbers 21 as they looked up in faith to that bronze serpent lifted up, looking up to Jesus will give you life. Eternal life is the phrase that's used here. And we're introduced to one of the major themes in the entire Gospel of John. And I've already told you this in the introduction to John back in John chapter 1. 17 times this phrase will be used in the book, almost once a chapter. This is the first usage of this phrase. So what does eternal life mean? Well, right off the bat, you ask people that question and they're going to say, life forever. And they're right. Part of eternal life is life forever. But all of you look at me. There's more to eternal life than existing forever because you do know that even those who don't believe in Jesus will live forever so it is life forever it's a quantity of life but even more so it's a quality of life that Jesus sometimes called the abundant life to have eternal life isn't merely to exist forever and to correct the notion that I had growing up, eternal life isn't something that begins when we die. Eternal life is something that we receive upon salvation, and it is a quality of life. It is to have the very same life that God has. To have the very same life, quality of life, that Christ, His Son, has. So it means living forever, but it means really living as opposed to merely existing. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus put it this way. This is eternal life, that they may know me and that they may know you, the only true God. Through believing in Jesus, one enters the kingdom of God, one becomes a Christian, or you could say here, one receives eternal life which was the purpose of John's writing this gospel. Remember chapter 20, chapter 21 that we looked at as we began and have gone back to several times already. John said he wrote about the signs that Jesus did so that people would believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that they would have life, eternal life. A number of years ago I found a story that illustrates further what it means to believe in Jesus. It's about a missionary years ago to the New Hebrides Islands. His name was John G. Payton. And for years, as he was learning the native language of that place, he struggled to find a word in their language that was a synonym for the word believe or belief. And he never could come up with one that, that 
did what needed to be done or communicate what needed to be communicated. Until one day, without even purposing to do so, after having been on a hunt with the native men that had lasted from before the sun came up to late in the afternoon, they made their way back home and worn out and exhausted, he threw himself down on the ground like this. And one of the native men said to him, it sure is good to stretch yourself out and rest when you get tired. And it struck a chord with this missionary. And he borrowed from the phrase that the man had used, stretch out and rest. And their words for that became his word through which he communicated to them what it means to believe in Jesus. It means to stretch out and rest on Jesus. And it sure is good. It means that we can completely fling ourselves on Him and count on Him to provide us with what we're really all longing for, whether we recognize it or not, and that is eternal life. And it gets even better because did you notice in verse 14 it says this is for everyone who believes in Jesus. Everyone could be anyone and anyone do you know what that means in the original language anyone well, I thought I'd get a giggle on that my goodness you already asleep it's not even five till yet it means anyone anyone everyone who believes in Jesus it's an invitation here right a wonderful invitation that if you will believe in Jesus you will receive eternal life it's why Jesus came so that anyone and everyone who believes in him would receive eternal life well that brings us to the most well-known verse in all of the Bible and if you didn't know about it all you would need to do is watch a golf tournament on Sunday afternoon somebody in the crowd gonna have up a sign that says John 3 16 on it And I've got a, I'm in the confessing mood this morning. I've got a confession to make. Now, usually I use these translations like the Holman in opposition to the King James, which I grew up, grew up on, and I feel no guilt, no twinge of conscience. But my confession this morning is that when I read John 3.16 in a translation other than the King James, that I have done something wrong. And I don't know that I've done something wrong. I sure am worried that there are folks in the congregation that think, why doesn't he just say it like Jesus said it in the King Jimmy language? So for those of you who feel that way, doing my best to remember it from childhood, Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever or whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
for those of you that are from a younger generation than me, an F is not a suffix that you're familiar with. I'll read it in the Holman again. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son. You know, begotten's not a word that we use a whole lot today either. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 explains further why Jesus came. That's what's going on here. It's talking about why He's come. It explains further why He came to die. Why he came to give eternal life to everyone who believes in him. And do you know what the further explanation is? Because of God's love. Because of God's love. What the author here is emphasizing is that when it comes to salvation, the kingdom, Christianity, when it comes to eternal life, that all of it is a possibility, and for those who have it, all of it is a reality because of God and God alone. The emphasis here is that this was God's initiative. God is the one who got the ball rolling. And keeps it rolling when it comes to this. God's love is a wonderful teaching of Scripture. I mean, we bathe in it. We, we wallow around in it. We contemplate it. We sing about it. We talk about it. And rightfully so. The love of God is amazing. And, and, and every other adjective that you could but with all of that said, there may not be a doctrine in the Bible that's more misunderstood in our modern world than this doctrine of the love of God. I want to talk about a doctrine that's abused. And look, it's abused and misunderstood in both directions, on both ends of the spectrum. On one hand, you have people who take a passage like this and they think it means that God loves everything and God loves everyone in the sense that he's happy with all of it and happy with everyone and that he gives eternal life at the end of the day to everyone and that's an abuse of scripture it's even an abuse of John 3 16 On the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who misunderstand and abuse this teaching by teaching or implying that while Christ is loving, that God, specifically God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, now He's not loving at all. But John 3.16 rectifies, if we will let it do so, both of those erroneous extremes God loves and he loves in his way and he loves as he defines it he is loving the initiative is with him so real quickly let's examine God's love just from this verse 
we see here that God's love is unconditional and intentional. Unconditional and intentional. The word that's used here for the first time in the Gospel of John is agape, or what we would call agape. It means that God loves sinners. Aren't we glad for that? That God doesn't just love good people. We ought to be glad for that because nobody would qualify for that. That God loves the rebellious and the fallen. And that he seeks to do them good. God's love is unconditional and intentional. We also see here that God's love is a great love. It's an exceptional, extraordinary love. That's what the phrase, in this way, means. Or from the King James, so means. We see here that God's love is a broad love. An inclusive love. It speaks of his love for the world. And because of who's writing it, and the original audience, I would suggest to you that as he speaks of God's love for the world, the real point that he's trying to make is that God doesn't simply love the Jews. He loves Gentiles too. He loves all sorts of people. He loves all peoples. He loves all nations. God loves people, period. God, when he doesn't have to, loves the human race. We see here that God's love is a generous love. It says he gave. Love is generous. It gives. We see here that God's love is a unique love. To understand its uniqueness, look at what he gave. His one and only son. His only begotten son. That's what begotten means, by the way. It doesn't mean created or made. It means one of a kind, unique. We could say then that God's love is a one of a kind love. Do you know none of us love like God loves? Nobody else ever has or ever will. And when you see that phrase, his one and only son, it should carry our minds back to the beginning of the Bible or near the beginning of the Bible with the story of Abraham and Isaac where in trying to convey to us the magnificence of what Abraham was willing to do, it speaks about him being willing to sacrifice his one and only son. Now he had other sons, but this was his special son, his, his unique son. Here's the difference, though, between Abraham and God. Abraham was willing to do it, but he didn't have to. And he was willing to do it as a sacrifice for himself and maybe his own family. God went through with it, and he did it for the world. Unique love. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrates, God commends, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 speaks of Jesus as being the kindness and love of God to mankind. 
1 John 4.10 says, Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, which means that which satisfied the wrath of God against us. Here in verse 16, we see three words that we've already seen. The word everyone, invitation, inclusive, anyone. We see the word believes, stretch out and rest on Jesus. We see the word eternal life, not just life forever, but abundant life, the life of God. We also notice here the opposite to eternal life. From verse 16, what is the opposite of eternal life? To perish. You want a definition for perish? Eternal death. Without the relief of ever dying. You see, they exist. But it's just existence, and it's a horrible existence at that. From verse 16, do you agree with me? I said earlier that on the one end of the spectrum, that abuse of teaching on the love of God contradicts even verse 16 by suggesting that God's, God loves everyone to the point that he's going to save them all. Verse 16 certainly implies that there are people that are going to perish. That there are people who are perishing. That there are people who have perished. R.C. Sproul put it this way. God didn't love the world enough to say that we can ignore the way that he has provided. You can see that with Cain. You can see it with people in the day of Noah. You can see it with those at the Tower of Babel. You can see it with Lot's wife and his sons-in-law. And on and on I can go. And it brings us to the fifth thing that's included in believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus includes belief in what he will save you from. Believing in Jesus includes belief in what he will save you from. From perishing. As a personal testimony, I can tell you that the primary thing that God used to draw me unto Jesus was the idea that apart from Jesus, I would perish. Some people I've heard try to knock that off as an insufficient motivation to coming to Jesus. No, that's a wonderful motivation for coming to Jesus. That's why it's spoken of so often. Notice here that those who believe in Jesus will not perish. How about that? Sounds good just rolling off the tongue. Wafting into our ears. Those who believe in Jesus will not perish ever. Will never perish. That's what it's talking about here. They have eternal life. Answer me this. And I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I've never claimed to be the smartest guy in the world. But if you can have eternal life and lose it, then by definition, would that mean that what you had wasn't eternal life? Right? Man, how can somebody have eternal life and then because they do something, they don't have it anymore? When we're talking about eternal life here, we'll never perish He's speaking of the security of salvation, the preservation of the saints, even the perseverance of the saints. The way that we persevere is through believing in Jesus. And God gives to all those that are really His faith that won't quit. 
Verse 17 and 18, real quick. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. I feel that I need to stress this. Now, I know what time it is now, but I don't want you to miss it because of the time. Sending Jesus was not God's way to condemn the world. We all on the same page? God wasn't looking away to get back at everyone, and so he sent Jesus and said, I'm going to show you. I know all of you are not going to believe in him, and that's the way I'm going to get you. No, it wasn't that way at all. No more so than God's telling Moses to put that bronze serpent on a pole was God's way to condemn those people. It was a way to save those people. That's what the sending of Jesus was about. It was God's means to save the world, to save people from the world, from condemnation, from judgment, from perishing, from the consequences for their sins, from their status as being enemies of God in the same way that that bronze serpent was sent by God as a means to save them from their death sentence. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The question then is, how is one saved? And verse 18 gets to the answer as passages or verses already in the text have. We're saved through believing in Jesus. We become a Christian. We enter the kingdom through believing in Jesus. To go back to our New Hebrides natives, we're saved through stretching out and resting on Jesus. You ever heard about the grandma who flew, flew for the first time? She's real nervous about it. Went to see her son in, in London. Not Linden, London. <laughs> There's an airport in Linden, by the way. I wouldn't advise flying into it if I were you on anything much bigger than, than small. Son picked her up at the airport and he said, Mom, how did it go? She said, it was fine, but I never let my weight down the whole time. <laughs> you can let your weight down on Jesus. It's, that's why I'm saying the second must is you must believe in Jesus. I said before that believing in Jesus includes belief in what he will save you from. And I mentioned perishing. Here we see the word condemnation. That's what he will save you from from the guilty judgment and punishment of God. God didn't give, God didn't send Jesus to condemn because we were all already condemned. We're all already under the judgment of God apart from believing in Jesus. The sending of Jesus was the only way to get out of that. Judgment's not just a future reality. It's a present reality for everyone who isn't trusting on Jesus to save them, including you, if you aren't. Jesus didn't come to a neutral world. He came to a sinful world whose greatest sin was unbelief in the provision of God manifest with the rejection of Jesus, who was God's one-of-a-kind gift. Now, do you think a God who's gone to that lengths to save the world will find unguilty those who have snubbed their noses 
and his offer of salvation through Jesus. There was a man who went in a, one of the world's most famous art galleries. A lady noticed him there that worked. She went and helped him. She showed him the whole thing. She explained the pictures, the, the, the artists, so on and so forth. Spent, spent hours with him, and at the end of it, the guy said to her question, what do you think? Well, I don't think much of your old pictures. To which she responded, Sir, I would remind you that these pictures are no longer on trial, but those who look at them are. Jesus came to a world that was already tried and condemned. He came to save it so that people from it could be born again and believe on him and become a Christian. The second must to becoming a Christian, you must believe in Jesus. And believing in Jesus includes belief in what he says, his word. It includes belief in who he is. It includes belief in what he came to do. It includes belief in what he will do for you, give you eternal life. It includes belief in what he will save you from perishing and condemnation. So once more this Sunday, the real question is, do you believe in Jesus? And if you don't, do look at who he is and what he's done and believe stretch out and rest on him if you already do if you are keep believing on jesus and keep giving and going and praying so that this message of his can be carried to our continent and carried to the world think about that this week think about this as we head to next sunday